Welcome back to the Alt Goes Mainstream podcast. Today's show was recorded live from Alts LA in partnership with Kaya. Kaya is the leading global professional body dedicated to alternative investment credential programs. On this episode, we speak with Mark Anson, the CEO and CIO of Common Fund. We discuss the current state of private markets and why alternative investments make sense in an investor's portfolio. Mark Anson is the chief investment officer and chief executive officer of Common Fund and chairman of the board of Common Fund Capital and Common Fund Asset Management Company. Previously, he was the President and Chief Investment Officer for the Bass Family Office. He was the President and Global Head of Investment Management at Nuveen Investments, a full-service asset management company with over $900 billion in assets under management. Prior to Nuveen, Mark served as the Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer for the British Telecom Pension Scheme, the largest institutional investor in the UK, with assets of over $55 billion. In addition, Mark was the CEO of Hermes Pensions Management in London, a 60 billion pound asset management company that is wholly owned by the BTPS. Prior to joining BTPS, he served as the Chief Investment Officer of the California Public Employee Retirement System. Thanks, Mark, for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast to share your views and knowledge. If you like this podcast, you can listen or read more about alts by subscribing at altcoesmainstream.substack.com. Welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. We have Mark Anson, the CIO and CEO of Common Fund. Thank you. Great to be here. Should be fun. Pleasure to have you here. You have a fascinating background. We'd love for you to share a bit about your background because you've done so many things in the world of investing and in particular in private markets. Well, let me take a little step back. I've had a great opportunity working for the largest sovereign wealth fund in the United States, a fund called CalPERS, the State Pension Plan of California the largest pension plan in both the U.S., Canada, the Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere. What CalPERS taught me most, first and foremost, was to focus on the liability side of the balance sheet. I was coming from Wall Street. And on Wall Street, it's all about managing the money. You want to get your hands on making investments. But CalPERS taught me to first focus on the liability stream because that's the problem you're trying to solve for. How are you going to develop a great pool of assets, a portfolio, that's going to fund that liability stream, not just for today or tomorrow or the next year, but for the next generation. And so getting that focus first on the liability stream before managing the assets was a great lesson to get from CalPERS. I'd say a couple other things, too, that that also came through with the British Telecom Pension Scheme in London. And the same thing at Common Fund today. When we sit down our clients who are primarily endowments and foundations, they have a spending need that they have to accomplish every year to either finance the operations of a university or the philanthropic goals of a foundation. That's their liability stream. Again, CalPERS gave me the background of first understanding the liability stream, focusing on that first, then you backfill how you want to build the portfolio to come together and build a great solution for how that liability stream is going to be financed, not only for today, but in the future. And then there's the Bass family. This is the wealthy billionaire family out of Fort Worth, Texas. Fascinating family to work for. But what they taught me was the critical need of philanthropy. And when times are tough, when you hit a recession, that's when philanthropy is needed the most. So it taught me the need for liquidity and the necessity of liquidity because in a down market, when portfolio values decline, is also when you get the greatest request and the most request for a helping hand. And that's when philanthropy is needed most, is when markets are declining. And so it taught me the great need for having a balanced portfolio, but building in that extra cushion of liquidity for those down markets in those rainy days. That's fascinating to think about the different things that you've learned at each of those stops along the way, whether you've worked for the public, whether you've worked for the private, and you're now advising the likes of both at Common Fund. What would you say early on 
was innovative in your career that you were doing in alts? Because you've been in the alt space for quite some time. And what would you say you're doing now that's innovative? One of the first things I would say I did with regard to the innovation was just contribute a lot of industry research to help support the legitimacy of alts. Perhaps the best contribution I made was my handbook of alternative investments, which was then used as the textbook for the Kaya program, the Chartered Alternative Investment Analyst program, but also doing a lot of research on hedge funds and private equity and private capital and private credit, and just building up a breadth of research to help support the alts industry, that these indeed were legitimate asset classes. They could add value. They did help to diversify the portfolio. Yes, that there is a risk premium out there to capture and that you can bring into your portfolio and demonstrate and give you extra returns. I think that was pretty critical. I'd say today, when I think about it, you know, what comes up quite frequently is ESG, environmental, social, and governance. And how do you build that into a portfolio construction process? And not only ESG, but how do you build that now into the private capital space? That's something, again, that we've been working on at Common Fund for the last few years, is how do we bring sustainable investing into the private markets so that now you can expand your investment opportunity set and take the innovation that we know as ESG that's been primarily in the public markets, but port it over into a private capital portfolio, where on the one hand, you can tie your ESG investing back to UN Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs as they're called, but at the same time, generate those double-digit returns that you expect from private capital. I think that's a great innovation. At the same time, still solving the ESG puzzle, porting it over to the private capital space and grabbing those extra returns along the way. I think that's a great innovation that we're proud of at Common Fund. You're bringing up a really interesting point here, which is how do you not sacrifice returns while also investing for some sort of social, environmental, or governmental impact? How do you think about the evolution of that where you can generate those returns? Because the detractors of impact investing or ESG investing would say that often sacrificing some level of return in order to get some level of social impact. And funds have said, depending on who they're talking to for prospective LP relationships, that investors will say, oh, well, you're focused on impact. Maybe we need to look at you in a different light than just generating returns. So how do you think about the evolution of that mindset and how maybe that's changing? So that mindset continues to change, but the debate rages. If you want to take the position that ESG investing adds extra returns to your portfolio, you can find many research papers that will support that position. But it's also true that if you want to take the position that ESG does not add value to portfolio, there's also research papers out there that, that will prove that point as well. So wherein lies the truth? And why do we have competing research on the one hand that says ESG investing adds value to the portfolio, and then there's research that says it does not? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. One is it's still sort of a new area. ESG investing has only been around for the last decade, so there's not a lot of good hardcore data out there yet. So the databases are not robust. That's one reason why you might get these differences. It could be that two research papers look at different time periods. It could be one research paper is focusing on S, or social objectives, while one is focusing on E, the environment or sustainability investments. So there's all sorts of reasons why these papers might conflict or have different conclusions. So what do we do at Common Fund? We said, all right, let's not try and solve the whole world that falls under ESG. Let's understand where we believe we can add value and where we have a demonstrated track record of being able to achieve those double-digit returns. So when we look at the sustainable space for private investing, we really look along three industry verticals. One is resource efficiency. It could be anything from taking a coal-fired power plant and converting it to natural gas. Another are sustainable or renewable energy. So that could be solar, for example, or wind. We do a lot of investments in that. And the last is sustainable agriculture. How do you increase the productivity of farms? How do you produce crops with fewer pesticides? Those are three areas, three industry verticals where, again, from our past experience, we can demonstrate double-digit returns, but at the same time, tied back to the UN SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. What we do is we focus where we know we can add value in terms of environmental impact, but at the same time extract those returns, but we're not trying to solve 
the whole puzzle for ESG. I'm not certain anyone can quite do that yet. You mentioned things like resource efficiency and investing for climate solutions. Do you think that we've reached the tipping point in terms of the need to solve these challenges on a global scale and the amount of dollars going in both from public and private sectors that is changing the dynamic of this is an investable area of the private markets universe? Certainly. I think we have reached that tipping point where most everyone agrees that we live on a planet with scarce resources. The more we dig those resources out of the ground or mine them, the the scarcer they become. At some point, we will have to find something to replace that, the whole sustainable idea or renewable resources as an example. That's not going to happen overnight. I know there are some out there that would wish we could suddenly go to a complete renewable energy for all of our fuel needs. But again, that's going to take time. Most of our energy here in the United States and around the world, for that matter, is produced through traditional natural resources or fossil fuels. So oil, natural gas, and coal. But that is shifting. And we do need to shift. The science of global warming is pretty exact and pretty well accepted now. And the question is, how is that transition going to take place? How fast will it take place? And where are the investment opportunities coming out of that? And that's our job as investors, is to assess those three dimensions and figure out where do we invest our clients capital to extract the returns we know they need for all their philanthropic needs. On that point, how much have your clients expressed interest and wanted to actively and proactively talk to you about, hey, we want to invest in a space like this? I'd say it comes up in most of our investment committee meetings, not all, but most being certainly more than 50%, probably more than two thirds. Certainly, there again, the debate rages as to should any fossil fuels be in the portfolio of an endowment or a foundation. Our view is that there's still a need for traditional natural resources because, again, we're not going to shift overnight into a fossil fuel-free world. That transition is taking place, and it will take place, but it will take time. When we sit down with our clients, we explain that you should have a balance between traditional natural resources because that transition is still just beginning and at the same time, starting to build in renewable resources as well. But we have reached the tipping point where we all recognize that we have to have some blend of renewable energy in our portfolios and more broadly in our economies, because eventually we will run out of our natural resources. What's interesting about something like natural resources investing or renewables investing is that that can cross-cut different strategies within a portfolio. That can be private equity strategies, venture strategies, investing in companies that are focused on that space, private credit, infrastructure, real assets, investing. You mentioned that you've seen the evolution of alts, and you also have a, you have a number of different clients and different types of clients. How do clients think about alternatives? Is there a specific definition that they have of what alts are? Is there a specific definition of what you have, what alts are, so that you can then advise clients in a way that makes sense for them, but also makes sense for the broader alt space? Alternatives is such a broad definition, and it can be interpreted many different ways. Uh, Some investors, when they think of alts, they think of hedge funds. Others immediately start to think of private equity and venture capital. The first thing is just defining with each client, what is it they mean by alts, or how do they view alts? One thing that we do talk about with all of our clients, though, is capturing what we call the liquidity premium. If you're a pension fund or an endowment or a foundation, typically you are investing for what we call intergenerational equity. And that means you're trying to generate returns not just for this year and for next year and 10 years out, but gosh, for the next generation even. Uh, Many of these organizations, universities, a lot of foundations and certainly pension plans are perpetual in nature. They're going to exist for many, many generations. And so we call that intergenerational equity. How do you generate long terms, not only for the current generation, but the next generation? And the way to transfer that wealth across generations, we believe, is through investing in private capital. Private capital is the broad definition for private equity or buyouts, leveraged buyouts, as well as venture capital, private equity, natural resources, and real estate. These are the illiquid asset classes where you can capture a liquidity premium, i.e. a premium for locking up your capital for a longer period of time. And that long-term premium that you capture then helps generate returns not only for today's generation, but again, for the intergenerational needs of that endowment, pension plan, or even of a family office. Because indeed, every family office has generations. 
And so how do you pass on and distribute that wealth to the next generation? And how do you continue to generate good returns that you can pass on for the next generation? That's critically important for every family office or wealth management platform. So one of the things we preach with all of our clients is having a sound foundation and a large allocation to private capital. And again, private capital is across the dimensions of private equity, venture capital, private credit, real estate, and natural resources. As some of these spaces have matured and attracted more capital, how has that changed how you've maybe thought about certain corners of the alt universe? Let's take private equity or venture as an example. There were significant amount of dollars on an absolute basis, but not necessarily on a relative basis compared to public markets. Now, private capital has meaningful amounts of capital allocated to this world, tens of trillions of dollars. And that should grow over the next 10, 15 years. How has that changed how you've thought about the alt space? Certainly, there are many more private equity investors out there nowadays, whether it's private equity, traditional buyouts, or venture capital, or private credit, private real estate. The number of managers out there has increased dramatically. So how do you continue to add value? That's the real question with so many of them out there. So a couple things. First, we like to invest with sector specialists, and particularly sector specialists that maintain the discipline of the size of their funds. One of the things you do see with the larger private equity funds out there, these are the traditional buyout shops, is their fund sizes have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. You start out with a $1 billion fund, and then it became $5 billion, the next fund, and the next one was $10 billion, then up to $20 billion, and now we have private equity funds that are over $20 billion. And what is happening now is these larger private equity managers are collecting more money, more revenues from their management fees than they are from their incentive or profit-sharing fees. And so that sort of skews the distribution in terms of their focus. That's why we like investing with smaller funds to begin with. At Common Fund, most of the funds with whom we contribute capital or allocate capital to are less than $1 billion in size. So again, fund size discipline, very critical, where the managers of that fund are focused not on generating management fees, but on generating profits. Because so much more of their personal net worth is tied up in generating profits than it is tied to the management fee. So that's one. Second, we like sector specialists as opposed to generalists. And why is that? We like buyout firms or PE firms or VC firms that are focusing on just one area. That one area could be natural resources. That one area could be banking, uh, uh, clearly a hot topic today. It could be just one area of venture capital. It could be artificial intelligence. There are now a number of venture capital firms that are focusing just on blockchain. So we really like those sector specialists that are doing one thing and doing it really, really well. And building the network within that industry or, or that sector such that they can find the best companies and the best investors in that area, partner with them and extract the best returns. So size discipline, sector focus, that's one of the ways you defeat this huge explosion of managers and in private capital. For wealth managers, there's one opportunity for them as well. They can reach out to commingled managers. It may be hard for an individual wealth manager to get access to the best VC managers, for example. And the reason for that is the best VC managers are typically closed. They're not taking on new investors. Even if you were to go out to visit them and knock on their door and say, gosh, could we invest in your next fund? They probably would turn you down, not because they dislike you. They just don't have any room. All their existing investors are willing to commit to their next fund. But for wealth managers, they can invest in a commingled product, which would give them access to a pool of venture capital managers or a pool of these sector specialists in the private equity space. And that's one way that they can generate those returns and get good access, even they may not have access to those funds directly themselves. One of the questions I get asked frequently is, gosh, Mark, how do I get access, for instance, to Sequoia, one of the best-known venture capital firms out there? My response is, well, if you haven't invested with them already, you don't. The way you get access to Sequoia today is by investing with them 30 years ago when they began. Actually, it was a little longer than that. Being one of their early investors, as Common Fund was, that gives us the access to Sequoia today. You have to build up these relationships with these venture managers at a very early stage of their existence in order to, to capture that long-term relationship. So then the question becomes, well, gosh, Mark, how do you identify the Sequoias of today? And that's a little harder. But what we do at Common Fund is, yes, we will completely re-up and commit capital to Sequoia and all of our best venture managers 
but we always reserve a little capital for those new managers that might be the sequoia of tomorrow. And that's just one way that we are always trying to find good managers that will be great managers tomorrow. And anyone who can do that can make those type of investments, including the wealth management space, the endowment space, the foundation space. They can all capture that value in advance. They can. It's hard to access. Certainly agree with you when it comes to smaller managers can outperform and sector specialists who are experts in their area can outperform as well. But totally understand that we're allocators into those types of funds. And we are a smaller manager in the VC world ourselves, focused on fintech. One of the challenges, though, that I think we see in the LP world is that there's a catch-22, right? Those smaller managers are generally harder to find and they're not as large. So that for the institutional investor, it's hard for them to access that manager with the size and scale that they may want to invest or they may be such a large part of the fund. On the investor side and the wealth management community, they may not have the resources or ability to access those managers and know where to find them. They may have the right quantum of capital to allocate but can't find it. How do you figure out that catch-22? And maybe that's where Common Fund comes in because you can be that intermediary that helps them do that. Well, indeed, that's where Common Fund does come in is to try and solve the catch-22. Certainly for the wealth management channel as well as for smaller endowments and foundations that may not have enough staff in the first place to reach out to good private capital managers or just the ability to track down those managers. That's where Common Fund comes in to help. And that's where we build our commingled products to give the access to our clients that they may not otherwise get themselves. For the largest clients out there, they have another catch-22, which is they're so big and they have to put out so much money, it's hard for them to invest with smaller managers because they would take up the whole pie, so to speak. So they get caught up investing with the larger private capital managers. And that indeed is sort of its own catch-22. Every investor has some limitation on their access to private capital. Again, it could be that they're too big that they can't invest effectively with smaller managers, or it could be that they're too small that they just can't get access to the good managers. Common Fund tries to fill that gap for both sides, try and give them that access that they might otherwise get. What do you make of, speaking of the point of access, the innovation that's happening on the technology side with the likes of the iCapitals, the cases, the moon fairs, the allocates that are enabling people to access private markets maybe who haven't had access before and also helping, in many cases, actually the larger managers manage these smaller investors. And it's a great opportunity. You're right. Here's a great case where technology is now being applied to the investment world and particularly to the private capital world where organizations like iCap, for example, are making broader access available to smaller investors, allowing them to get access to better private equity managers that in the past would have been too big. Some of the private equity managers may require a $10 million minimum investment or even larger. And for most people, myself included, that's probably too big for their pocketbook. So for the wealth management space and for smaller endowments and foundations, There are tools out there now that allow them to access some of these managers where the initial check that used to be written was very, very large and was prohibitively large for some investors to commit to. Now, by pulling individual investors together to write one check, so to speak, they now can get access to better managers that might otherwise accept the money in the first place. And that's what some of this technology is bringing into play. It is helping, again, fill that gap or put together the glue between or great private capital investors on the one hand, and small investors that just may not otherwise have that access. I want to cover something related to this, but also related to something that you've talked about a lot, which is the concept of beta. You referenced this a little bit earlier in what we just talked about, in that maybe the world of private markets, let's take private equity or venture as an example, as funds get bigger, there's more capital that goes into a space. It may be harder to generate truly outsized returns relative to their peers. There will still be a better interquartile dispersion than the public markets, mutual funds, things like that. But as funds get bigger, the larger funds, dispersion between those larger funds' performance may be smaller and smaller. How do you think about the concept of as the private markets matures, that there will be both beta and alpha within private markets? There has been a term thrown around, private equity beta, which is just as larger firms get larger and larger and they tend to put capital out in companies that are tied more to public benchmarks that you start to resemble more the public benchmark. And so more systematic 
market risk, what we call beta, begins to drift into private capital portfolios. So just taking a step back, there is a lot more systematic risk or beta risk or market risk in private equity portfolios and then typically it gets measured. About 20 years ago, I published a research paper back then in the Journal of Private Equity where I talked about lagged betas. And this is just simply the concept that you have to recognize that private equity and venture capital and real estate and all the illiquid asset classes are just that. They're illiquid. They trade infrequently. And because they trade infrequently, they may underestimate the true amount of market risk or beta risk embedded in their portfolios. In that paper, gosh, going back almost 20 years ago, I used a technique I called lagged betas. It sounds very sophisticated, but you can actually build this in a spreadsheet, an Excel spreadsheet. But it shows you how you can track the amount of beta washing through a private equity portfolio over a period of time. So as opposed to just looking at beta as a one-period estimate, you look at beta measured across two or three or four quarters. And what I found is that with regard to private equity, the buyout space, that lag beta goes back about three quarters. What that means is just simply you can't measure the, the beta of private equity against just today's quarterly, quarterly return in the S&P 500. You have to go back to last quarter's S&P return and the quarter before that and the quarter before that. If you add all that up, you'll get a true measure of the beta embedded in private equity. Private equity goes back about three quarters. Venture capital goes back about four quarters. And real estate, the least liquid asset class, goes back five quarters. So again, you have to regress your private equity returns on not just this quarter's S&P 500, but the prior quarter, the quarter before that, and the quarter before that. And that's how you add up the lag beta. Now, I've been asked a lot of times, well, gosh, Mark, okay, you published that paper 20 years ago. Do you think that still works? And the answer is yes. I've actually published about seven or eight papers on this topic over the last 20 years. And this phenomenon stays amazingly consistent that the lag beta is about three quarters for private equity and about four quarters for venture capital and about five quarters for real estate. So why is all this important anyway? Well, it gets back to the question of beta and alpha. Alpha is what's left over once you account for all the beta. So to truly find out how much alpha is embedded in private equity and venture capital and real estate and any illiquid asset class, you have to use the lag betas to first determine the full amount of market risk or beta risk washing through that private equity portfolio once you've used the lag betas, then what's left over after that is the alpha. And of course, what you discover is there's a lot more beta risk in private equity than what you might expect, or venture capital or real estate. So the alphas shrink when you take into account the lag betas. Now, the good news is there's still a lot of alpha left over. But it's not as much as that private equity manager may tell you that it is. There's a possibility that economic cycles may happen faster and faster now. How does that impact the concept of lag beta, if at all? So it's interesting. I did measure this in one of the papers. What I looked at is, does the beta expand the lag beta? Does it expand or contract in up versus down markets? Again, if you're having a bull market, are private equity managers quick to mark up their portfolio and capture more of that up market? And so the betas compress. And then in down markets... Are they kind of slow to mark down their portfolio so the beta gets even more extended and even more lagged? When I published this first paper on this topic, looking at the up versus down markets, my natural inclination was, of course, the lag beta is going to be smaller in up markets because, of course, private equity managers want to mark up their portfolios faster. And, of course, the lag beta is going to be longer in down markets because, of course, private equity managers want to mark down their portfolios slower. In fact, it was the complete reverse. What I found, and this is true for private equity as well as for venture capital, is private capital managers are faster to take their write-downs and slower to take their write-ups. And that gets back generally to the rule of conservatism. Let's not claim the full value of an investment until we're really sure we can earn that value. And if we're pretty certain that this investment's taken a hit because we're now in down markets, let's take that hit now and get it on our books now. So I found actually the reverse behavior. And this gets back to then accelerated cycles. If our cycles do begin to pick up, yes, I might expect the betas to contract a little, but you have to ask which cycle is it? Is it an up cycle that's going really fast? In which case, betas start to get a little bit more extended, or is it a down market cycle that suddenly accelerates, in which case I would expect the lag beta to shrink a bit. Related to this as well, 
some of the proponents of private markets investing would say that the fact that you report on a quarterly basis may actually be a positive, not a negative, in the sense that it reduces or smooths out some volatility, at least on the surface or potentially artificially, but there may be some smoothing of volatility. And in some cases, you could also argue that illiquidity can be a feature, not a bug. Human psychology has it that we generally like to sell things, maybe when we shouldn't, and get a little impatient, whereas illiquid markets prevent us from doing that, in some cases, are our best defense against us being our own worst enemies. How does that concept Uh, particularly in markets like this, which tend to be more volatile, how does that impact this whole concept of lag beta and how investors are approaching private markets? Because of the lag beta and this mark-to-market that only takes place on a quarter-by-quarter basis, private equity managers and venture capital and real estate, they basically get to amortize their volatility. And what I mean by that, it just means that even though the public markets may be more volatile all of a sudden because of, for instance, a current banking crisis, private equity managers get time to let that volatility wash through their portfolio and it gets more distributed evenly. So the volatility that you're seeing on the marks coming from the private equity manager is not the true volatility that's embedded in that portfolio. Using lag betas will help you strip out some of that volatility and get a better estimate of it. The other thing that lag betas help you do is it tells you what is the true correlation of private capital, so private equity and venture capital and real estate. What's the true correlation of those asset classes with the public markets? When you use lag betas, not only do you get a fuller measure of the total amount of beta risk embedded, you also get a better measure of the correlation between private capital and the public markets. And no surprise, the correlation goes up significantly when you incorporate lag betas. The same thing for volatility. Volatility goes up when you take into account the lagging effect. That's one thing. The flip side of all this is private equity and venture capital and all the other liquid asset classes. They can make you as an investor look really good when the public markets are declining. As we've seen through 2022, it was a bad year to be in the public markets, both stocks and bonds. Now, what happened is it took longer for private equity managers and venture capital managers and real estate managers to mark down their portfolios. That lagging effect meant that private capital lagged the public markets. While you were taking a hit to your public equity portfolio and taking a hit to your public bond portfolio, your private capital portfolio was sort of propping you up for a while and making you look really good because you weren't having to take those write-downs right away on the private capital part of your portfolio made you look smarter than you might otherwise have been. Now, there's a flip side of this. And the flip side is when you hit the bottom, let's say in a recession, and the public markets bottom out, so public equities bottom up and public bonds bottom up, and then they recover. They will recover faster than your private capital portfolios. Now your private capital portfolios are a drag on your performance, an anchor on your performance. And now you start to look dumb because... Your public markets portfolios are recovering, but your private equity portfolios are taking time to recover with them. Suddenly, while you're looking really smart on the public equity side and the public bond side, you're looking less smart on your private capital side. What we always advise our clients is take these up and down movements in the public markets in stride with what's happening in your private capital portfolio. Understand that there is a lagging effect. That means it takes time for private equity portfolios to catch up to what's happening in the public markets. And when public markets are declining in value, you will be propped up by your private capital portfolio. And when public markets are going back up in value, you'll be pulled down a little by your private capital portfolios. Take the good and the bad, and remember, you're investing for the long term. That advice seems to be for both institutional and individual investors. Now, they may have different end goals or different needs on a short and or long-term basis. One thing I think we're starting to see that's happening in private markets as there's more individual investor participation or through intermediaries or directly into alts is that there's a desire or need for liquidity, whether it's founded or unfounded. How does that impact what you just talked about? The fact that the private markets themselves may become more liquid through structures or products. Is that a good thing? And if so, how does that impact what we just talked about? A couple thoughts in that overall question. If private markets become more liquid, there's the potential that the liquidity premium that 
we all have been capturing for decades now may begin to dissolve or dissipate. Maybe not all of it, but potentially some of it. So that it's less rich to invest in private capital. By the way, at Common Fund, we published a research paper about four years ago on just that measuring the liquidity premium associated with private capital. So spoiler alert, the long-term average is about 3.5%. What do we mean by the liquidity premium? This is the additional return you get over and above the public equity markets. So again, as we discovered in that paper, the liquidity premium about 3.5%. That means on a long-term basis, if you expect the public markets to return about 8%, let's say, you would add the 3.5% on top of that 8%, and that would give you your long-term return expectation for private equity. The liquidity premium is real. It can be captured. The long-term average is about 3.5%. But again, if private capital became more liquid, maybe some of that 3.5% shrinks. I don't know, but that would be my first suspicion. And I think the other part of that is just Again, when you're trying to access this liquidity premium, something we haven't really talked about is that liquidity premium you can't capture in any passive format. There's no ETF or index fund associated with it. The only way you get to capture that liquidity premium is by finding good private equity and venture capital and real estate managers that will go out and invest your capital for you and capture that premium for you. So that premium only is attached to active investing right now, unlike the equity risk premium that's attached to public equity markets that you can capture through an S&P 500 index fund. I think we've encountered another really interesting catch-22, which is, like you just mentioned, the only way to capture that liquidity premium is through active managers. Active managers generally tend to charge more fees because they can, because they're active managers. And that's how they justify it to some extent. Now, the liquidity premium, that is net of fees, right? The return, and the return for anyone, whether it's public markets or private markets, what matters is net of fees return. How do we reconcile both of those things we just talked about, that the way to capture liquidity premium in private markets is through active managers, but potentially as more liquidity comes into private markets or liquidity mechanisms come into private markets, we could see returns or that liquidity premium go down. My first comment a bit facetiously is, yes, there are higher fees in private equity, venture capital, private real estate, get over it. That's the entry price you have to pay to find those good managers and invest with them. But you made the great point, which is that 3.5% long-term liquidity premium is net of those fees. Yes, the 2 and 20 or 2 and 25 model that you see with private equity or venture capital or private real estate, it is an expensive model. But look at what your net returns are. Don't focus on the fees. Focus on what you as an investor earn net of those fees. And again, consistently, you can earn double-digit returns net of fees by investing in private capital. That's critical. Now, back to your point about let's say we can somehow make private equity and venture capital and private real estate more liquid. Yes. So maybe we rode some of that liquidity premium because now we're not capturing the full liquidity premium because it's not fully illiquid. It's now more liquid. And so the liquidity premium is smaller. Potentially I would then expect fees to be smaller as well. So there'd be some trade-off. You're not getting the full liquidity premium because you're now dealing with something that's let's say semi liquid or semi illiquid. At the same time, maybe the fee structure isn't 2 in 20 or 2 in 25. Maybe it's only 1 in 10. Where do you find that? Actually, you kind of find that in private credit. Private credit, remember this expression. We used to be expression about 10 years ago called shadow banking. And as we came out of the great financial crisis of 2008 and 9, a lot of banks pulled back from lending to small and medium-sized businesses. And so a lot of private lenders jumped into that space. Back then, it was called shadow banking. Well, now it's no longer shadow banking. This has long been out of the shadows. It's called private credit. And these are pools of money, private capital investors that are putting together money from limited partners to make loans. What bank loans used to do, they're now doing traditional first-tier, senior-secured, floating-rate loans. And there is a liquidity premium associated with private credit but it's not as large as it is for private equity or venture capital or real estate. It may only be in the one to 2% range, at least as we've measured it. So the 
There is a liquidity premium for private credit, but not as large that you would normally expect for private equity, venture capital, real estate. But consequently, the fees for private credit are lower as well. So there's some of that trade-off where you're getting something that's a little bit more liquid, has less liquidity premium, but you're also paying lower fees. What advice would you give to business builders in the alt space, i.e. the asset managers across private credit, private equity, venture, as they go into a new era of alts? Like you say, maybe fees are compressed a little bit. There's also more opportunity. There's more investors to go after, new parts of the market to go after. So how would you help them think about that? I can't help but think back to a great anecdote I had. I was meeting with a a very well-known hedge funds back in my CalPERS days. We're meeting around in this beautiful conference room at their beautiful offices around this beautiful marble table that must have weighed five tons. And my first opening question was, what are your fees? And they said, our fees are three and 30, meaning a 3% management fee and a 30% incentive fee. And I just stopped. And there was dead silence in the room for what felt like two minutes, probably was only 30 seconds. And finally, one of the partners spoke up and said, well, We have to charge those fees because that's the only way we can limit the number of clients investing in our fund. I sat there and I thought that partner didn't justify the fees based because we're worth it. Didn't justify those fees because we're really smart and we're really good at what we do. Just, no, that's how I limit the number of investors in my fund. That's what the market bears. And so that's the fee I charge. Complete disrespect for his investors, at least in my opinion. So first bit of advice I would have for private capital managers who run private capital funds, whether it's private equity, venture capital, or private real estate or private credit, is understand who your clients are. They're endowments, foundations, pension plans, family offices, all investing, trying to do good on behalf of those clients. Don't try and rip their face off with fees. Figure out what's a reasonable fee for the services you're providing and make certain that that fee is justified by those services and that you're not just charging some fee that you did because you thought that's what the market would bear and you had no justification for it otherwise. I guess I was on my soapbox there for a while. I'll step off now. No, you bring up a really interesting question, which I think a lot of asset managers now have to think about as there are more sources of capital that they can go to. It's how do you balance the return generation versus the business building aspect of growing AUM? You can generate large amounts of fees and that's a business. And these managers are business builders and we have to give them credit for that. But there's also who's their customer. And I want to get to that piece too, which is, As there are more investors coming into the private markets, what advice would you give to them about how to access and think about investing in private markets? First, let's go back to the business builders. And you're right. On the one hand, if it's a buyout fund or a venture capital fund or a private real estate fund or private credit, their primary goal is to invest intelligently on behalf of their clients. But at the same time, it's a business. And like any business, they want to build it and they want to grow it. One, it helps generate more wealth for them. But a key reason is they have other team members on their team that they'd like to see grow and have careers at the firm. How do you build a career for someone at your firm? Well, you have to make certain that firm is growing. I don't want to rain on the growth trajectory of private capital. That's a good thing. Uh, The question is, where do you want to grow and how do you want to do that? We have seen a number of private capital managers try and build what are called crossover funds. And these are funds that have both a combination of public equity, let's say, and private equity in them. Okay, fine. How can you prove that you know what you're doing in public equity as much as private equity? What is your thesis? What is your skill set that demonstrates you now know how to do that? And what's the fee? Back to fees that you're going to charge. Again, what's the reasonable fee for the services you're going to provide and the returns you expect to extract? So business building is a good thing for any private capital firm. It's just how are you going to build the business What new services are you going to offer? Or you're just going to increase your fund size. And let's be blunt. Some private equity managers just increase their fund size just because they can. And because by charging the same management fee on a bigger fund size, they generate bigger management fees. And they don't necessarily grow their firm, but they do grow their revenue stream. So I guess I got back on my sub-box. I better get off that again. No, look, on the LP side, fees are an important question. I think that that's one of the pieces as well. Your fund size is your strategy as a manager. So as an allocator, that's something you have to think about as to what types of managers you're allocating to. So from the LP or allocator side, what advice would you give them? Particularly for allocators that might be new to the alt space or starting to build up their portfolio or program. So let's go back to the liquidity premium. I said the long-term average was 3.5%. Indeed, that is the long-term average, but it is a risk premium. And so it goes up and down a lot. 
It doesn't mean that you're going to get 3.5% in any given year. It just means over the long term, you collect that. That's the first point. You are investing for the long term. Remember that. Unfortunately, you'll see some investors that either get into private equity and then ramp it up, and then we hit a recession, and their portfolio gets a little stretched, or they get into a liquidity crisis or a crunch, and so they have to sell out some of their private capital portfolio. Then they take literally a loss on the portfolio because they have to sell it at a discount. So first, remember you're investing for the long term. Second, pace yourself. You don't have to build up your alts portfolio right away. It will take time. There's another term that we haven't talked about before called vintage year diversification. And it's nothing more than the old idea of dollar cost averaging. Don't invest all your money at once. Average it in over time. The same thing applies in private capital, whether you're investing in venture capital or private equity, real estate, private credit, is allocate capital over time, recognizing that you're doing for long term. Another key part is make certain that you do stress or shock your portfolio so that if we have another terrible year like 2022, when both the public stock market and the public bond market are down, both by double digits, that puts a strain on any portfolio. And no one is immune from that strain, but make certain that you can withstand that liquidity shock and still meet the capital calls that are going to be flowing from private capital. Something else that we note, and I mentioned this earlier, is that the liquidity premium, the long-term premium, again, at 3.5%, that's what we measured for private equity and venture capital. But as I noticed, for private credit, you get a liquidity premium, but it's smaller. Again, our best estimate is 1% to 2%. What that means is you can now ladder up liquidity premiums in your portfolio. If you want to invest for a longer period of time and you feel more comfortable locking up your capital for a longer period of time, you can try and capture that long-term 3.5% liquidity premium through private equity and venture capital. If you're a bit more conservative or you're just getting into private capital now and you're worried about liquidity, then you can invest in a private capital fund, which has a shorter investment period and a shorter harvesting period. You're not going to get the same level of liquidity premium, but you'll still get some of it. So again, there are more opportunities nowadays for allocators to get into private capital to ladder up their liquidity premiums, but at the same time, they don't have to bite off more than they need to chew at once. You've had a number of different vantage points through which you've looked at, invested into private markets, both representing public institutions and entities and private institutions and entities. What's your biggest learning from those experiences and biggest takeaway when you think about how to think about investing? As we close out, I'll close out where I started, understanding the liability stream, how that liability stream may grow and change over time because liability streams aren't constant. And by the way, you know, everyone has a liability stream. You don't have to be a pension plan, an endowment, or foundation. You and I have a liability stream. We actually, we have two. One is funding our own retirement accounts, and two is paying for our kids' college education. And hopefully someday they get off the family payroll. Everyone has a liability stream they have to fund, and understanding that. The second gets back to the theme I was making before, intergenerational equity. Investing for the long term. Even if you're an individual like myself, you still want to leave some wealth for the next generation of your family. So how are you going to build up your portfolio over a long period of time? And you do need a slug of private capital to do that. Capture that liquidity premium. It will earn great long-term benefits for you over the long term. And again, keeping in mind that liquidity premium that we measured in our research paper is a long-term average. It could be more or less in any given year. could even be negative in any given year. But you invest for the long term with the expectation that's what you're going to earn whether you're a perpetual organization like a pension fund or an endowment or a foundation or a human being or a wealth management firm where you're investing for a family office, you're still looking to pass on wealth to that next generation. But I think those are the two key things. Focus on the liability stream that you have to solve right in front of you and invest through that intergenerational equity for the next generation. Remember, you're a liquidity provider. So provide that liquidity and get paid for doing it. On those points, do you have a favorite or most interesting alternative investment that relates back to those two? Well, let me talk about what I see right now. Private credit remains strong. Gosh, no surprise in the middle of a banking crisis. Banks are probably going to pull back even more. In fact, they've already started doing that. That will open up the playing field for private credit. Just think, for instance, the default and bailout and now subsequent sale of Silicon Valley Bank or Silicon Valley Bridge Bank. It had a very large venture debt portfolio. You would expect that to shrink dramatically. 
that means there'll be a need for private credit to step into that space to help provide venture debt financing to startup companies. And there are a number of firms out there already, but I would expect them to see their opportunity set grow and other new competitors to come into that space. So private credit remains robust. And, and I would expect, not just with regard to venture debt, but I think broadly across the banking industry, as we've seen Deutsche Bank get hammered, the bailout of Credit Suisse, there's more stress in the banking system right now, which means retrenchment. And retrenchment of traditional lending by banks means greater opportunity for private capital. VC, we still like venture capital. We have a great chart at Common Fund where we map the business cycle of the United States going back the last 30 years, every boom cycle, every recession. And then we plot on that chart where the great companies were formed, the Googles, the Amazons, et cetera. And what's fascinating is when you look to see when is innovation born, it's born no matter where the business cycle is. Innovation is born whether the market is up or when the market is down. It doesn't matter. Innovation is a constant, exists independent of the business cycle. So when I talk about venture capital, I sometimes get asked, gosh, is now a good time for venture capital? Markets are down. We're in a banking crisis. Yes. Today is a good day for venture capital. Yesterday was a good day. Tomorrow will be a good day because you know what? Innovation is going to happen regardless of where we are in the venture cycle, where we are in the business cycle. And indeed, all the great companies that we all well know, those have all been born in both up markets and down markets. That's another key part that I would consider. And then there's opportunities in real estate. Things that we like right now, last mile logistics. We all want our Amazon packages to be delivered same day. Well, you got to have logistics to get it there to you. And so last mile logistics, basically bringing distribution warehouses closer to the end consumer. That's a critical development. Data centers, we all hear about big data, artificial intelligence, smartphones, smartwatches, smart everything except ourselves, I guess. Well, you need data to store and collect to be able to really focus on that and get to the granularity. Well, that's all kept in server farms, data warehouses. So that's something else that we just see tremendous growth. Cold storage, same thing. Not only do we want deliveries to come to us, we want now many more food deliveries. This all came out from COVID. We want our groceries delivered to us. Well, to get those groceries here, they have to be stored in something that's cold, like a freezer or a refrigerator. So cold storage has grown in popularity. That's another area of real estate we think that has high growth demand. Stop there. Those are three areas we like in private capital and maybe drilling down a little bit more in real estate. That is great because no surprise, Mark, but you gave us a primer on how to think about alts and how to invest in alts and access private markets. So this was fantastic. Thanks so much for coming on the Elko's Mainstream Podcast. A pleasure. Hopefully we'll get a chance to do this again some other time. We'd love to. And thank you for all the listeners who listen to this on the podcast. Thanks again. Bye now. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening to this episode of Elko's Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Stigmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. We're going